Revisited, a podcast that explores our relationship with the natural world. It consists of interviews, stories, and discussions that highlight the notion that nature is not a place one goes to, but rather a place one is already a part of, that we are nature. On this episode, I would like to welcome Tequila Chenyopa. Tequila is from the Sitkam region of northern India and is a Buddhist and an environmentalist. Among her achievements, Tequila founded the Sacred Earth Initiative at the World Wildlife Fund in 2009. In 2014, Tequila was awarded the Yale McCluskey Award for Conservation Innovation. In 2018, Tequila founded and directs the LOCA Initiative at the University of Wisconsin. I invited Tequila to join me and share her life's work and to talk about the sacred and the science. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. saying that I am so pleased to welcome you to Nature Revisited. Your life is a wonderful example of how important it is to have a personal connection with nature. And I want to start by asking you, how was your recent visit to India? It was wonderful. I had not been there for more than a couple of years, and I had not traveled actually since the pandemic. It was my first time. I went to Sikkim, which is in Northeast India, which is my uh, my home region. I got to spend time with my family, but it felt so good to be grounded in, in Sikkim again. It was wonderful. So let's start there. You were born and grew up in Sikkim, which is now a part of India. How much did nature play a role in your early years? Um, quite a lot. I don't always talk about this, but you know, my mother was a very interesting woman. She was very successful in her career. She was a principal of a well-known school, had been successful academically, but in her 30s, she decided she wanted to take her vows and become a nun, uh, a Chilean Buddhist nun. And so she loved to move around and give teachings and take, you know, take teachings and sort of in Buddhism. And so most of my childhood, I, which I, I have to say, I never realized that was strange. That was just my childhood. But I spent a great deal of time with her in West Sikkim, kind of the wilder part of Sikkim and where a lot of the forests are still intact. So I spent about four years with her basically living in remote wilderness area where there were just two roads that would connect where we lived, maybe an hour or two away from each town. And there was nothing else. It was just forests and there was a school that she was trying to help build. And so 
I didn't realize in any way that that was different than what most other children were experiencing, even in my family. But what it meant was that I spent a lot of time in nature. And what it meant was that I, I was able to witness how nature unfolds, how species interact, how, um, how seasons affect nature and how seasons affect forests. Be in observation of what happens in the natural world. You know, my first love, honestly, is wilderness. I just have such a deep gratitude for nature, right? Because you see how every part of nature exists to create and sustain life. And there is no discrimination about what kind of life. There isn't a preference. There isn't, it sort of, it, it unfolds in this way where everything gets to flourish. Everything has its own time. And so I think it really influenced how I thought and how I felt about wilderness protection, wildlife protection, all of these things, but also generally how I felt about how we as species could live together and could flourish and that there didn't need to be attention, right? That it wasn't a zero-sum game. You grew up in the shadows, and I hope I can pronounce this correctly, of Mount Kanchenyunga, the third tallest mountain in the world. But how did that mountain and what it represents influence you and your community? So I come from the Bhutia community, which is one of the three communities in Sikkim. Kanchenjunga, actually in our language, which is Tibetan derived, is Kanchenjunga, which means the five treasuries of snow. For us, you know, for the three communities in Sikkim, the Lepcha, the Bhutia, and the, the Tsonglimbu, nature is alive to us. It isn't something that just has a religious or mythological importance. It's sort of, we see it as having its own inherent independence and its own inherent existence, right? And so, Kamsuzinga in particular is our protective deity. That's how we view him. And he is important to us on so many levels, including the fact that he bore witness to the three tribes coming together in a peaceful way when the kingdom of Sikkim was born. Because we as the Bhutia, we actually came from the north, we came from the Tibet, and the Lepcha were already there. And so there was this entire summit that happened. This is centuries and centuries ago, but there was a summit that happened and came a commitment among the three peoples that was witnessed by Kamsujunga. And so we believe that he protects us all, that he protects what used to be this Buddhist kingdom of Sikkim. And because he's real to us, he's not a figurative sort of concept, he's, he's real to us, we have fought extremely hard to make sure that he doesn't get climbed and that he doesn't get conquered. You know, this idea of sort of mountain expeditions going there and putting their human flag on a mountain that has, has been alive for a billion years. So we really push back on that concept. And from the second side, Kanzuzunga has never been climbed, which is also why most people don't know, you know, don't know of, of the mountain. But it brings me back to an ethos that I think indigenous people have all over the world, which is that nature has the right to exist for itself, right? That nature does not exist in subservience of humanity. It's the other way around. We actually owe our existence to nature. For me, even though I'm so far from Sikkim and I've spent a lot of my years 
traveling in other parts of the world and working in other parts of the world, at a very core level, I believe that Kung Fu Jima protects me. His awareness extends because he's part of the earth. And so it means that when I work in other places, I also pay attention to the relationship indigenous people have with the land there because they have the same reverence and love for the land that I do for my land, right? And so I think in that sense, the mountain represents so much of the work I've ended up doing. And, you know, it's interesting to me because we are a very modern state. Our rates of education, for example, are very high in India. You know, my generation was completely was educated in the English medium. You know, what I would think of as sort of the Western civilization kind of influence, right, with all the positives and the negatives. And yet, I don't know a single Sikkimese person that doesn't feel the way I do. And that doesn't protect Kansasinga from kind of this, this concept of conquering. That's wonderful. You moved to the United States when you were very young. How did your experiences in India help shape your future after you moved to the United States as a teen? And share a little bit of that, that time in your life. My aunt lived in New York City. She worked for the UN. And so she brought me to New York City. I laughed because, as you can imagine, it was quite a shock <laughs> to leave Sikkim and to, to be transplanted in New York City. For the most part, I loved it because it opened up, you know, I, I was one of those kids that just read nonstop and didn't want to do very much because I was reading and discovering new things. And so being in New York, I mean, it's like a gateway to a magical kingdom, right? I never realized or even conceptualized that I was an environmentalist before I moved to the U.S. In Sikkim, there had actually been started, a protest had just begun when I was a teenager because there were hydropower dams that were going into these sacred sites and that were being planned for these sacred sites. And the Lepcha people in particular were really, it was in their sacred lands, so they were really pushing back. And I'd been part of that protest in a very nominal way, right? Like I was just a kid and trying to understand it and was starting to understand the relationship between hydropower and what that meant for communities in particular. This was all very slowly conceptualizing in my brain. So when I moved to the U.S., it was really natural for me to sort of, I think, gravitate. I think the first organization I joined as a teenager was Greenpeace. It was really natural to gravitate towards that. I think one of the things that I really struggled with in the beginning, and maybe to some extent still continue to struggle with, is that From a societal point of view, America is very individualistic. And I came from a society that is the opposite of that. There is a difference in how America sees itself in the world, right, the role it plays. But also at an individual level, what we see is sort of there is this real value system that goes along with individualism. And I think I struggled a lot with that because initially, you know, my worldview was not like that at all. My worldview was very community-based. It meant that I looked for communities that had similar worldviews like mine. And I think for that reason, it was really natural for me to gravitate to focusing and trying to build relationships with people that were like me. For someone like me, who's a transplant, who kind of goes between two cultures, that I have a choice. And I get to pick the best of both worldviews, if you know what I mean. I do. And your story is fascinating. When did you first kind of realize that the spiritual connection with nature and the scientific understanding of it 
were interconnected. And what made you decide that you would work to bring these two worlds together, not just for you, but for others? Such a great question. When I started focusing on environmental science, when I made the decision that that's what I was going to study and build a career out of it, what was really apparent to me was that you either pick the world of science or the world of faith, that these two things could not be held in parallel because they were two opposing methods of discovering the truth. As someone, especially who was raised in Tibetan Buddhism, that was really inconceivable to me. Tibetan Buddhism in particular has methodology behind what we think of as training the mind, meditation. It was inconceivable to me, first of all, that religion was being painted with such a white brush. And secondly, that within religions, that there was this disregard of the fact that there are actually scientific methods within religions of how you seek, quote unquote, the truth. So for me, what was really apparent was that actually my religion and science were really um, in harmony. I never felt that tension between these two worlds. So for me, there wasn't this bifurcation that I know exists for a lot of people between religion or between spirituality, let's say, and science. I think what was also very obvious for me, and now that I've told you the story of Kamsa Zimla, was that it was really obvious to me that it was our sacred connection to nature that kept many wilderness areas alive and thriving and protected. That Sikkim is, you know, covered with sacred lakes where we are really, really careful who goes there, when we go there, how we make offerings there. There is absolutely no littering allowed. And this existed before any environmental movement showed up. So that spiritual connection with nature actually went side by side with the scientific understanding of what was required for environmental protection. So I never felt that tension. However, what was really obvious was that a lot of people did. In my case, I had offered my time to the head of the Karmakagyu Tibetan Buddhist lineage, which is the lineage my family belongs to. It had ended up sparking an environmental movement among the Tibetan Buddhist monastics in the Himalayas. So they have their own institution now. It's called Koryug, which means environment in Tibetan. Um, there are about 50 monasteries and nunneries that do measurable environmental projects on adaptation, on resilience, on disaster management, on de reforestation, or whatever you can think of, the monasteries choose and they do these projects. So here was this example of how not just a spiritual connection, but religious institutions that could actually make a difference and be an ally. And the response I got from the environmental community for the most part was that not only are these two things opposing, if you give your allegiance to one, you cannot give your allegiance to other. What I basically had was evidence to say that that wasn't the case. And that in fact, if anything, you could work with religions as a major stakeholder and they in many societies have way more influence than scientists and policymakers. It was a really gradual process of discovery for myself that what I was doing as a personal project had relevance to the professional world that I belong to. I had to look for other methods and other means, right? To feel that we were exploring every kind of solution there is out there. It's been very obvious to us for a long time that relying on governments and corporations isn't going to turn the tide. 
And so that, it was a very gradual epiphany for me that the people I was working with on the side could actually be brought to the center as allies and as ambassadors and as sort of movement builders, as storytellers, as moral authorities. I mean, at every level, they were so important. And then they did something that we had moved away from in the environmental and climate science world, which was they brought sacredness with them since the 70s, moved very far away from the deep ecology kind of arguments. But that deep ecology ethos comes in many ways from the spiritual connection with nature. And I think they can revive that connection that is so desperately needed. We have sort of, um, in many ways, given up our our inherent identity as being a child of this planet. One of the great powers of bringing the conversation back to the spiritual connection with nature is that we are forced to shed all of those you know, external things and go inward and, and look for connection and see where we are rooted and see what sustains us. So you were working as a field conservationist with the world wildlife fund when you decided to become a vegetarian which you said led you to start the sacred earth program what is the sacred earth program and what is its mission so i won't say it was becoming vegetarian that led me to start the sacred earth program so i worked for the world wildlife fund for 14 years i was very successful i was the youngest field director they had What I often say, there is a sort of uh, invisible feeling for women from, brown women in particular, let's say who are indigenous or who are from a region. You're allowed to be an expert in your region, but you rarely get to be an expert outside of it. And I kind of organically somehow managed to, you know, be seen as an expert in a much larger region than mine. Um, And I do talk about this quite often, that you would assume then that I was very happy and that I was thriving. And actually, I was experiencing what we now know is called eco-anxiety. I was experiencing a great deal of despair because when you spend all your time looking at the projections of what is coming and trying to change and leverage change among policy or, or the private sector, it can be an extremely exhausting experience. My family had taken me to Bodh Gaya, which is one of the main pilgrimage sites for Buddhism. And when I was there, I heard His Holiness the Kamapa, who's the head of the Tven Buddhist lineage of Karmakagyu Tven Buddhism. He was actually making a call for vegetarianism. Now, I had tried to be a vegetarian for all kinds of reasons, but mainly climate change for many years and kind of I would fail, you know, I would last for five days and then would just give in. And it's partly cultural because we come from the mountains where a lot of the time in the winters you don't even get fresh vegetables. And so it was sort of partly cultural and partly my taste preference. And so he went into his own explanation of how he had chosen to become a vegetarian. And when he had finished the teaching, which was really based on compassion, compassion for sentient beings, compassion for all life, he asked the question, you know, how many of you would consider becoming vegetarian? And the sea of hands went up, including mine. I had this out-of-body moment where as a, as a Buddhist, I was so moved by this call that a faith leader made to me on the basis of my spiritual values. But as a scientist, <laughs> I was looking at myself and looking at all these hands going, 
this is mass behavior change. What I'm seeing is a call being made by one person who is able to influence thousands of people with one talk and get them to make a commitment that they did not want to make before this, that they had not particularly considered before this. And that's how Sacred Earth was born. (laughs) Because I was a field conservation director, I was able to actually write to all the conservation directors I knew in the field programs and say, has anyone worked with faith leaders? Are people thinking about it? Or, you know, has there been any experience? Are people interested in it? And I received a flood of emails back. It it turned out that, you know, at a project level, so many places had tried it. There were so many success stories. It It just had never come to the top. And faith had not come to the top as a major stakeholder group that could actually, in many ways, break the paralysis we were having in in different parts of the world, right, around issues where we were grappling either with the private sector or with communities or with the government, and that we could work with faith leaders to break that paralysis and to move things forward. And so I created Sacred Earth in the beginning as a pilot program to basically gather evidence to demonstrate that working with faith leaders could change the tide. We picked five places around the world, the Amazon, East Africa, the Himalayas, the Mekong, and the United States. In East Africa, the issue that we worked on was poaching and trafficking of wildlife. We worked on the same issue in the Mekong because it was sort of a source and sink problem. You know, the source for all this illegal ivory and rhino horn was, was, was Africa coming to East Africa. And the sink for all the ivory and the rhino horn was actually China coming to Thailand. Thailand had a legal loophole that allowed all the ivory to enter and then be relabeled as domestic ivory, which was legal. So they were able to bypass CITES and all of the, the international treaties that existed to, to stop wildlife poaching. I think the mission of it was always very simple, which was that we wanted to basically invite faith leaders to come to us as partners and work with us to protect life on Earth. And when we made that call, actually, what we didn't expect was we would be inundated with with faith leaders that wanted to work with us. And really, their question to us all along was, what took you so long? You know, because <laughs> they, they've been trying and they've been trying to do this work on their own for decades. I mean, really, for 50 plus years. So in 2014, I received this wonderful award and grant, the McCluskey Award from Yale. The award sort of consists of a year at Yale and gives you grant funding so you can do whatever you want. I had created Sacred Earth as a five-year program, so that five years had just come to an end, and I was trying to think through what needed to happen next. This fellowship actually gave me this incredible freedom to sit down and just observe what had happened in the last five years, what I'd learned in the process of creating Sacred Earth. And one of the things that I'd really struggled with was that in the science world, we really love categories. <laughs> it's probably one of the first things we learned to do. We love labeling and putting things in their place and in their order and creating, in some sense, like a table or a hierarchy. And that doesn't exist in the faith world at all. When I would go and work with the faith community and I would say, 
you know, we are really interested to work on, let's say, the protection of spring sheds, right, or the protection of a free-flowing river or something like that. For them, they couldn't see that as one thing. And one of the things I'd really struggled with with sacred earth was having to say no to faith leaders because they would come in and they would say, I really want to do this with you and I want to do everything else. And I would say, well, I can only do this one thing with you. Yale allowed me to sit down and think through what I could do with my time. What was it that I really wanted to create now that I had this community of faith leaders all around the world and a network of indigenous and faith leaders that were really wanting to engage in in measurable practical ways. I tried a prototype for what is now the local initiative here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The idea was that what happens if we just open the dialogue and say, we want to work with you on environmental and climate issues. You tell us what you want from us, and we will try and deliver that. And the dynamic completely shifted when when that happened. And so in that sense, what I learned was that when you show up to be in service without your own mission, trust opens. And we, I think, really in the global north have to learn that trust is earned. If you are the person of privilege, you have to earn that kind of trust from people who are not privileged and who are marginalized. And I think that time at Yale really made me understand that relationship. So it was really clear to me that whatever I created next, I couldn't come in with my own agenda. I couldn't come in with my sort of very driven mission of how I want things to be. It had to be a very organic, co-creative process. And what was amazing to me is that when I created, you know, the local initiative and when I started redesigning what what a faith and ecology movement could look like that was built by from the science side, let's say, that when we came in without an agenda and a mission, how relationships could flourish. And so at the local initiative, our one of our biggest programs is actually to work with evangelical church leaders on environmental and climate issues, and it's thriving. And I think it's doing well because we drop this idea that we know best, and this is our mission, and you need to adapt to it, right? Like all of that language just, and that way of thinking just dissolves. So you're the director of the LOCA initiative at Wisconsin. When did that program start and how can our listeners learn more about it? I created the LOCA initiative with Dr. Richie Davidson, Dr. Jonathan Patz, Dean Paul Robbins, and Dr. John Dunn. So I was invited to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2018. These people that I mentioned, they are all heads of their own programs. Richie Davidson is a neuroscientist who has been studying mindfulness and who is the person who proved that meditation actually changes the brain. Dean Paul Robbins is the dean of the Nelson School of Environmental Studies here at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Jonathan, some of your listeners probably know him. He was part of the Nobel Peace Winning Prize for Climate Change with Al Gore and everybody else. He was part of the IPCC team at that time. Um, And John Dunn is a great uh, Tibetan Buddhist scholars. There were these people who I had been interacting with and who I had known for a long time, who I would consider friends or or allies in some sense. They were watching the program I created at Yale, and they basically wanted me to build it at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
to conceptualize a program where you could kind of pivot depending on what state leaders needed. So if state leaders wanted something that was more artistic, I could kind of pivot in terms of the humanities part of the university. And if it was something they wanted that was much more focused on mental well-being, I could turn to Richie's team at the Center for Healthy Minds. We launched the LOCA initiative in 2019. We had a big symposium. We had state leaders from all over the world coming, meeting with scientists and policymakers also from all over the world. And together, we created the mission of the LOCA initiative, the vision of the LOCA initiative, and then the programs we'd focus on. The vision for LOCA is it's that inner community and planetary resilience are interdependent. And that you cannot achieve any one of these things, inner resilience or community resilience or planetary resilience, without working on the other two. So our mission is to actually be in service of faith leaders and culture keepers of indigenous traditions who are working on environmental and climate issues. And the programs that we pick to focus on are driven by that. The three faith communities that we serve the closest and work with to build programs, like I said, is the evangelical community. In partnership with them, we build capacity building programs for church leaders all around the world. We also work with culture keepers of indigenous traditions, and we're very focused on the concept of indigenous resilience, looking at the relationship between humans and nature through the lens of sustenance, because indigenous people that, that is how they view the world, that there is an interactive sustenance that is happening. So it's sort of, there are three communities we work really, really closely with, but we do a variety of other things because at LOCO, we're really worried about and invested in the next generation of environmental and climate leaders. And we really want to make sure that their resilience is as Oh, as vibrant as is needed, right, considering what is coming and how much harder things are going to be for, for younger people. And, of course, we're very centered on black, indigenous, and people of color, so we're really worried about what that, the emotional impacts are for them as well, because they're almost always on the forefront of any kind of environmental or climate disaster. There's, there's a whole range of programs that we do. You can find out more about us. We have a newsletter that goes out quarterly where we sort of keep everyone updated and tell them what's coming next. We're on social media. It's just LOCA Initiative, L-O-K-A. We, of course, have a website, so you can find us multiple ways. (laughs) You often do say that the center of all things is interdependence, and you've already kind of addressed this. Do you have anything else that you would like to say about that, about that idea of all things being interdependent. My environmental ethos boils down to this, that I firmly believe that the reality of existence is interdependent. And the example I often like to use is ourselves. Wherever we are right now, we are breathing oxygen. We couldn't last 10 minutes without it. That oxygen doesn't come, to, come from us. It doesn't belong to us. It's, it's not inherently part of the human body we require to exist. How can we even consider ourselves to be individual selves when we cannot exist without that external input? And that oxygen, it comes from all over the place, phytoplankton from oceans, forests near you, or your gardens outside, or whatever it might be. It's, it's coming from far and near. And in so many ways, it's, it's not cultivated. It, it's inherently there. We need it to survive, and it's there for us. How can we then 
consider ourselves to be complete selves when actually we are in this very fundamental existential way tied to the the well-being of everything else around us in nature. We are actually constantly interacting with nature, constantly. And that reality of interaction is interdependent. At the center of all things is this, this play of interdependence that is happening between humans and nature, that is happening between different species. And I, I think ultimately this, this concept of interdependence is so key for us to, to kind of break open this reductionist view we have of the world and our time on it. Because it allows us to shift from a self-centric way of seeing everything. And I'm a Buddhist, so for me, you know, one of the things that, that I honestly find very humorous is the self-centricism because we are so taught to focus on the fact that our time on Earth is impermanent and learning to be comfortable with that idea, with the fact that we will be here for a very short period of time. And therefore, the Earth in no way can be centric, human-centric. We're not here long enough. And I think there's so much beauty in understanding that that part of interdependence, that part just lives forever. You know, growing up in the Himalayas in the middle of nowhere and then getting to travel all around the world and, and hopefully be part of solutions, I think, has been really meaningful. I, you know, people ask me all the time, do I have hope? And I always say, well, I don't think that's the right question. I think the question is, do we have the courage? And that probably what we need is both, right? We need hope and courage because we can go either way. We can still turn this thing around. And that requires a kind of courage for us to step forward and do something. I think one of the things that I see quite often among people is this, they're so overwhelmed by the realization of how complicated the problem is that they don't act. And at this point, a lot of the time what I say is it doesn't even matter which, which end of this ball of string you pick. Just pick one string. It will lead you to the rest of the ball, right? Because everything is interdependent, multiple and complex and complicated. And so it doesn't matter if you decide that your entry point is going to be safe drinking water. It doesn't matter if you decide it's going to be human rights for climate refugees. It doesn't matter which, which end of the string you pick. Just pick one because it will bring you to the center. And we're all there at the center. And I think the more of us that come towards the center, the, the future will shift. The possibilities for a sustainable future opens up. Because what I see is an engagement at a really, at a root cause level that I don't remember seeing when I was in my 20s. Capitalism brings us the opposite of all of that. So then what do we do with the systems we have that are in place? And I don't think we're going to get to a sustainable future without dismantling a lot of that, those systems. I just think it's impossible. So I feel a lot of hope because I see after a very long time this real questioning and bringing and bridging together, you know, race issues, social equity issues, environmental and climate issues, and a whole new generation of people saying, well, why can't we question that? Why do, why do we have to follow only the solutions that are presented to us that continue to prop up capitalist structures? And there's a real power to that. There's a real power to embracing that kind of change and impermanence. 
So my last question is going to be, can the sacred and the science coexist? What if they were one and the same? <laughs> my answer, you know, what if they were just one the same thing? I mean, I do see a sacredness in science. And as I said, in my tradition, the, the mind training exercises are very scientific, very rigorous. Not only do they coexist, what if, what if they're actually two faces of the same coin? And what if sacred embracing the science and science embracing the sacred actually sort of heals a lot of the risks that exist, that have actually made us sort of entrenched in our positions? It only enriches the work we do, and it only gives us more possibilities when we embrace the other part. You know, it's been interesting because when I first created Sacred Earth, I had friends that advised me not to do it. You know, I had friends who were worried that I would not be seen as a credible scientist. And I had this conversation with a senior conservation scientist, and he and I were getting a beer after work, and he was sort of saying to me how he just absolutely was a complete atheist, didn't believe in any idea of there being a spiritual dimension to existence. And then in the end, I asked him, do you remember that moment when you realized you were an environmentalist? Or do you, was there a moment when it sort of catalyzed for you that you love nature? You know, how, how, how do we become environmentalists? And when he started talking about it, he basically described that he was in a forest. And he had this moment where he suddenly felt that he had become one with the forest and he was breathing with the forest. He described, you know, the sunlight hitting his face, him suddenly understanding how the sun is giving him energy and is feeding not just, just the plants, but feeding him. And as he was describing this entire thing, I was just sitting there thinking, well, that's a spiritual experience, isn't it? You know, however we define what the sacred is or the sciences, the fact is that we all became environmentalists because we realized that there was something bigger than ourselves and that we were part of it. And all of a sudden, that idea of self and other just fell apart. Everything became part of the self, or we became subsumed in the larger self. That as long as we have respect for the other, we can come together and combine our forces, because we're out of time when it comes to environmental and climate issues. We need everybody to engage. And so when people say to me, why do you work with religious groups? Or why do you work with this particular group? Or why do you work with indigenous leaders? My answer is always, why not? We're out of time. We need everyone. Again, I would like to thank Takira Chanyalpa for joining me on Nature Revisited. It was such a pleasure. If you enjoyed my conversation with Tequila, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow Nature Revisited on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, on our website, NordenProductions.com. If you already follow Nature Revisited, please consider showing your support by rating and reviewing this podcast on your favorite podcast app. The music for this episode is from the recording The Endless Note, Folk Instrumentals from Sitcom. 
Nature Revisited would also like to thank David Lipo for his continued and generous support. Thank you. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. <laughs>